And happy February, everyone. Jaden Daly here with you on the Daily Dose of Hoops podcast, episode number five. We're moving right along after starting this a month ago on New Year's Day. And now we set the stage for a pair of Big East contests involving Seton Hall and Providence, each team with two games in the coming week. The two play each other on Wednesday, February 3rd, and then Seton Hall goes to Gamble Pavilion after that. The Friars will take on St. John's after that at home. And to set the stage, this is the first time that our friends at our sister site, College Hoops Digest, joined the podcast. And we welcome two guys who know Seton Hall and Providence very well, representing the Pirates, the founder and managing editor of College Hoops Digest, Josh Adams, and handling all things Friars on this podcast, the man who covers PC, does a lot of Bryant University stuff and Boston University PA, the golden voice that is Jake Zimmer, Josh, Jake, it's been a long time and I couldn't wait to have you guys on any longer. Welcome on board and thank you for spending some time with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jaden. Thank you for having me. I think the, the golden voice might be the best compliment I've ever received from anybody. So thanks. And I mean, you, you're almost doing it as an injustice by putting us, you know, right after Fanta. I think this is the second podcast in a row that I've appeared after John Fanta within two weeks, three weeks, something like that. So I don't know if it's just my luck or what at this point, but man, you're dragging me right down. <laughs> oh, John Fanta set a very high bar here on, on New Year's Day when <laughs> we had him on and we've been joined since by Jerry Carino, who covers Seton Hall and Rutgers for the Asbury Park Press in Gannett, New Jersey. We previewed St. John's and Marquette with Zach Braziller and Ben Steele. And we welcomed our first coach and a man, Jake, you know very well, Jared Grasso up at Bryant on our recent episode. And we'll get into him a little later. We'll get into some other stuff a little later. But first, we'll go with the local angle. Josh, I'm going to put you in the spotlight here first with Seton Hall. Two big games against big competition. Creighton and Villanova came to the Prudential Center this past week. Creighton coming back from a 16-point deficit to defeat the Pirates 85-81 this past Wednesday, January 27th. Three days later, Villanova comes into the Rock goes up double digits. Seton Hall gets closer on the scoreboard, but the 80 to 72 final, not really indicative of what the game led on. Josh, just get us up to speed. What did you see from those two games from the Pirates that suggest that their NCAA tournament hopes may be a little closer to the bubble after such a promising start and salvaging the one and three beginning of the non-conference season? What have you seen from Seton Hall over the past two games against Blue Jays and Wildcats to suggest that Wednesday and Saturday are pivotal coming up for Kevin Willard and company? Well, Jaden, you know, I, I'd like to extend that to the last three games because, you know, prior to, you know, there there was a game at Villanova, which Seton Hall was very much into, was had a chance to win. And it came down to, you know, Mama Kalishvili missing a uh, full court pass that landed in his lap and he could have uh, hit an easy layup. So, you know, I think with, with that, with the sort of blowing the 60-point loss to Creighton and then Villanova just coming in and, and, and just executing almost a flawless game plan against the Pirates. And they clearly, I think, against Villanova were still kind of shell-shocked from losing that big lead against Creighton. Uh, and, you know, you can see that in the first half against Villanova. You know, like you said, this – this team has kind of faced this precipice before this year. You know, they were one and three <clears throat> and uh, lost to Louisville. They lost to Rhode Island. They got their doors blown off by, uh, by Oregon and Omaha. And they came back. They, they, you know, as well as I do that, that, uh, that Jim Ferry coached Penn state team was a, is a very underrated big 10 team. And mm-hmm. that game really kind of set them back on track. You know, they, they really, uh, down the stretch, Mama Kalashvili showed up and showed what kind of player he was, especially in the waning minutes of that game to put it away. So my hope is that we have the same kind of that same kind of reaction. I don't think that any one of us would think that Seton Hall on paper is or playing is better than Creighton or Villanova. They're just not. You know, Creighton, Villanova is a national championship caliber team. Creighton, there's a worse $10 bet to spend than betting them on the Final Four this year. They are sneaky, sneaky good. Uh So, 
Seton Hall isn't at that level, but the fact that they had a 16 point lead against Creighton, that they had a chance to win at Villanova shows me that, that they are an NCAA tournament team, but as we sort of see, they have weaknesses. They have, there's, there's so many weaknesses that we could get into. And, you know, there's, there's, I, I, I just think that Mamu Kalashvili is the straw that stirs the drink there. If, if he's engaged and if he's playing his game, they win. If, if he sort of pulls a disappearing act, they lose. And, and I'm just haven't seen it the last couple of games. You know, he has disappeared down the stretch and, and it has cost them. And one thing that was a topic of conversation in the last two post-game press conferences with Kevin <laughs> Willard was Mamu getting the ball down the stretch more often. Zach Braziller from the New York Post actually asked about that. And Kevin Willard credited Creighton and Brett McDermott. And that, that's Brett McDermott, Josh, going into a 2-3 <laughs> yeah, zone. Yeah. Mm-hmm going into a two, three zone to really take Mamu out of the game. And that really helped turn the tide for the Blue Jays. But I ask you this as someone who has seen Seton Hall inside and out over the last couple of years, do you think that maybe making things a little harder on paper plays into this group's hands? It seems like every year a Willard team usually does its best work when it's back is against the wall. We've seen it when Mamu went out and Miles Powell was out last season with the 52 to 48 win over Maryland the year Mm -hmm. before that picked eighth in the big East and managed to find a way into the top three. Do you think that the unintentional adversity might end up doing this team a favor? You know, I, they're, they're a veteran team with, with, with Kale Roden and Mamu. And they've been down this road before. So my inclination is to say, yes, that, that they can. But I know there's, I'll, I'll do sort of a, a caveat on this. I think that there's no alpha dog on this team that they've had in the prior few years. You know, Powell was clearly an alpha dog last year. An underrated alpha dog was McKnight last year. This year, I think that Willard is, he's almost being, we've seen enough Kevin Willard to know that when he's mad, when he doesn't think the players are playing up to his expectations, that he will throw them under the bus in a press conference. He will call them out by name. And this year, I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing him fall on the grenade more often than not, that he blames himself for, for coaching, for not being able to adjust, not get the right rotations. And he's, he's, maybe it's just because this year has been so difficult. And I, I can't imagine, you know, you and I have talked about this, but I cannot imagine playing basketball in this type of atmosphere that, that 2020, 2021 has brought with no fans, with no, no one on campus. So I think he's in a tough spot where, you know, he has to not really go after players like he usually would because it, it's already, this season's already a mess. So, you know, you want, I know he wants to get the best out of them, but at the same time, someone has to step up. Someone has to take a leadership role in the, last, in the next couple months here. Because one thing about seniors is that, you know, February and March, this is where the rubber meets the road. And all of a sudden, in a blink, your college career is over. And someone amongst uh, Kale or Mamu Kailashvili, I, I look at those two, and they have to realize that, hey, they have two more months left in the Seton Hall uniform. They're done. So I look for one of those two to, to step up and take the role here. We're talking to Josh Adams and Jake Zimmer of College Hoops Digest getting some background information on Seton Hall and Providence before the two schools face each other on Wednesday night up in Rhode Island. And then both schools will take on UConn and St. John's respectively. And Josh will continue on with you here with Seton Hall. You mentioned Mamu and you mentioned Miles Kale. Jared Roden's had a breakout season. Mm -hmm. One guy has gone really two guys that have gone underappreciated. Shavar Reynolds taking on the bulk of the minutes at the point guard spot with Bryce Sakin having been injured already twice this season and 
coming in off the bench more often. And mm-hmm. to call him also the Canisius transfer, where if you're a regular Daily Dose Foops reader, you've known what he could do from his days as a, an all-Mac first-teamer and rookie of the year with the Golden Griffins. But how much has Molson meant to this team, Josh, seeing him from a Pirate perspective? And Shavar Reynolds, we all know his story, former walk-on, now a scholarship student-athlete, a knack for clutch shots, and now doing way more than what would normally be asked of him. How do you sum up those two and their performances so far through two and a half months of the season? Well, Jaden, to your credit, you told me all about uh, Molson's game prior to uh, him joining Seton Hall. And you said, watch out for this guy, that he's going to be, he's going to do great for Seton Hall. And he's, he's as advertised. And he is really one of those types of players that, you know, especially during you saw it during uh, the Villanova game uh, this past weekend. He was in on every 50-50 ball. He would drive to the hoop fearlessly. He's a stopper on defense. He's he, he really Kevin Miller calls him a junkyard dog. He is a junkyard dog. He he lives and breathes the game of basketball. Those are the, are the types of players that are always favorites of mine. You know, and he is he's the type of player that leaves it all out in the court. And the same with Reynolds, you know, Reynolds, well advertised, as you said, a walk on. But but Reynolds is is just, you know, you have to have an element of of just fearlessness to say, I'm going to take that shot when needed. And we've seen him make consistently big shots. And, you know, one of my favorite Twitter phrases is Shavar Reynolds all he does is make big shots and that's what Mm -hmm. he does and you you just can't say say enough about them you you really can't they they are what sort of college basketball they're they're one of the great pleasures of watching mid-major college basketball and low-major college basketball is that they're players who who are just out there and they just love the game they're not out there to make the NBA they just flat out enjoy playing basketball and they give it every ounce and Reynolds and Molson are those types of players, except they're playing on a high major. And, and that's the best compliment I could ever pay a player in that, you know, they, they would, they would play. If you said our game is at 3am in the morning in Anchorage, Alaska, they'd say, that's fine. Get me on a plane. I'll be there. And, and I think that highly of both of them. And to follow that up, Ike Biadu has had a very interesting road at Seton Hall, really in the shadows of Romaro Gill last season. Now he's come out on his own. He's the starting center on this Pirates team. He has this, the same shot-blocking prowess that Gill has being a seven-foot rim protector. How much have you seen from his transformation and his maturation from last season to this year? We've both seen Obiadu last year and what he's done this year, and how much of a credit is that to Willard? And we'll give Brant Billmeyer is to here too, working with the big men as well as he has and as long as he has in South Orange. How much of a credit is that to coaching and just Obiadu's own raw progression? Well, we all know that 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 Grant is just one of the best coaches in the country when it comes to teaching fundamentals to big men. the The development that we that 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 we witnessed with turning raw, raw, raw talent in Gill and Delgado and Obiagio into quality, the high quality division one players, you know, you saw the progression in their game year by year go to such a height that you, you, you cannot discount how good of a coaching job he does. You just can't. It, the proof is in the pudding. And that said, Obiaju, he is not used efficiently enough, I think, this year by Seton Hall. He is, he is as big a weapon on defense as anyone in the country. I mean, he, he, he has a knack for making defenses see ghosts. If he's on the court and you're driving to the hoop, even if he's nowhere near the play, 
he'll make a he'll make a guard square up and take a pump fake, even though he's nowhere near the play. He's that good of a shot blocker. And we when he's on the court, it is a total different ball game. You know, one thing Villanova did that I noticed on on Saturday is that on several of the possessions, Wright would have all five of their players start the offense possession beyond the three-point line. It's something that I, you know, watch enough basketball, you rarely see that. And the reason why is that he wanted to, to draw Obiagu out as far away from the lane as possible. And that's the type of type of impact that, that he has in the game. And as long as he's on the floor and he's not used enough on offense either. You know, that, that they, Seton Hall uses this play where they will have the guard drive in and lob it to him. And it's always either an easy dunk, easy lay-in, or free throws. And they use it two or three times a game, and then they get away from it. And it's one of those things that drives you nuts where you go, they need to utilize this guy more. Because he is at 7-2 and, and a knack for blocking shots. And, and just who's going to stop him underneath the rim? I think the more they get him involved, the more he's on the floor, the better off they're going to be in the long run. Talking to Josh Adams and Jake Simmer of College Hoops Digest, setting the stage for Seton Hall and Providence and looking ahead a little bit after the two teams lock horns on Wednesday night. Josh, Seton Hall comes in off the three losses, and you mentioned the 76-74 heartbreaker at the Pavilion a couple of weeks ago in the first meeting against Villanova. How much – is or how close is this to a must win with a trip to UConn coming up next at Gamble Pavilion Saturday, the day before the Super Bowl? How much of a must win is this, especially after the first meeting between these two at the Prudential Center, where AJ Reeves had a dagger three in overtime to end the Brian Custer streak, among other things, for Seton Hall? <laughs> and we'll we'll get into that a little bit. How much of a must win do you think this is, Josh, for the Pirates? Oh boy, I you know with both these teams coming off losses, you know with with Providence coming off that loss to Georgetown and and uh, Seton Hall coming off uh, you know three straight losses, and both standing at nine and eight. Um, I don't. I, I know that Seton Hall needs to get a, a, a split here in the next two games. So I'm not sure if this if they if they lose Providence, Connecticut's a must win. Now, on the other hand, I think this is a must-win for Providence, which I'm sure Jake will, will, will speak on, in my opinion. I'm sure Jake, will, Jake has his opinion on that. But, you know, I think this is much more of a must-win for Providence than it is Seton Hall, especially being up, being up in their home, their home, not exactly the dunk. You know, I know they're playing at their gym on campus. But, uh, uh, you know, four straight losses obviously wouldn't be great. But I think as long as they get a split, in these next two games, I, I think they'll be okay, but, but preferably they'll win, but I don't think it's, a, this game is a particular must win. I'll, I'll bring, I'll bring Jake into this after a pretty long hiatus after his introduction, <laughs> one of the voices of Friars hockey now gets to talk Friars basketball, but first Jake, let me just sum up Josh's little preamble here on the pirates. What have you seen from Seton hall as Somewhat of an outsider to the program up in New England, from your perspective, what have you seen from Seton Hall to suggest that this matchup could be a 50-50 game either way? What does Seton Hall bring to the table that Providence will have its hands full with? Well, I the good news is we've got some paper trail to prove that this probably will be a dogfight, right? Back on December 20th, the two squared off and we all know that ended 80 to 77 in overtime. Um, call the officiating what you will, I think, is a theme throughout the entire Big East this year, to be quite honest with you. But mm-hmm. again, that's a, that's a game that Seton Hall was up 40 to 38 at halftime in. Providence only outplayed Seton Hall by a bucket in the second, uh, the second half and then went on to get lucky in overtime and squeeze one out, right? So from the perspective of you know, watching the Friars um, and, and the way they've played all year, I think that this is going to be another one of those, right? And this is one of those games that historically also over the past couple of years, for sure, has gone um, either way, right? I think once you start um, going back a little bit too far, it's quite dominated by Seton Hall, to be honest, especially on the road. But um, 
from the perspective of a fellow Big East, uh, you know, covering a fellow Big East member, what do I see in Seton Hall? Number one, the biggest takeaway is that Sandro Mamukelashvili has to be, you know, in the top three as of the date we're recording this for Big East Player of the Year. Uh, we've seen critics from around the the nation really rave about him um, and the leaps and bounds he's made in his game. He was a great contributor last year. And for him to step up and fill the role, the much-needed role of a leader and someone that's going to carry the weight of the scoring on his shoulders, that's big. That's really big, and that's been proven time and time again that they're going to lean on Mamu to make those big shots, set a big pick, make a big pass. I think that's the, the biggest concern for, which I'm sure we'll get into, a Providence team that is absolutely bleeding defensively and you know, it's going to be one of those that comes down to what, what goes on in the paint in this game. Okay, Jake, with that said, let's get us caught up on what's happening in the 401. Providence is 9-8, and 5-6 and six in Big East play, but the real heartbreaking tale in that story is three of those losses have been by a grand total of four points. The loss to Xavier, the loss to Georgetown, which is Providence's most recent game, a 73-72 to 72 setback at McDonough Arena. And then on top of that, the two-point loss to Creighton, where Christian Bishop dumped with a half-second left in the first game of 2021. Jake, it's been an up-and-down year for the Friars, as was the case last year, and I'll get into that a little bit more. But from Ed Cooley and his team, what has defined this pandemic truncated non-conference season and what the Friars have been able to do in Big East play? What has been the recurring theme here? Well, I'll give you a one-word theme, and this is not coming from me. It's coming from Ed Cooley himself. But if you ask him, in majority of the losses over the past few weeks, there's been one word, and it's soft. He has called this team soft after they've lost, I think, a grand total of three times now. Um, and, you know, he's gone on to say, I, I have to put the blame on myself. I have to teach this team to work harder. I have to to teach them to make the big plays in the right moments and to, to kind of keep their mental composure down the stretch too. Unfortunately, you know, you actually left out a, another big one. I got buried among all this madness too. It was a 74, 73 walk-off on an Adam Kunkel three from Xavier. Actually, excuse me. Kunkel was a couple weeks before that was Colby Jones. So yeah, you know, that's, it's crazy to think that Providence is now in the same exact situation that they were last year, which is, Every game almost feels like a must win. Now, there's some good wins sprinkled in there. A really solid 72-63 revenge win over Marquette a couple of weeks ago. On the road in Omaha, 74-70 against Creighton. There, there's some glimpses of good in this team for sure. Um, they've got to get better on defense. That's been the, the biggest theme that we can really, um, you know, kind of dissect and, and try to offer here is that they, they need to get better on defense. Obviously, you have somebody in Nate Watson who is certainly going to be on either the first or second team in the Big East this year. Um, you've got the elite scoring output of David Duke, who I believe as of today is coming in scoring eight, over 18 points a game, actually. Watson stepped it up to 17 points a game. And then after that, there's a big void. Step up. And none of them have really taken that consistent role of being the other guy to complement the other two. He said time and time again, it cannot be David Duke and Nate Watson putting the weight of this team on their shoulders. They simply are not talented enough elsewhere to, to make those contributions and fill them in. So the story is yet to be told for sure. I think there's some, some promising flashes of guys that I'm sure will, will come up later in the conversation here, but the theme has really been the, the softness. They need to close out games and they need to play better defense. And that's what's led to those heartbreaking losses. Talking to Jake Zimmer and Josh Adams of College Hoops Digest previewing Providence and Seton Hall. Now we're looking at this game Wednesday night from a Friars perspective and Jake put we both led into on that last question and answer. I'll get into a little more. Providence last season was defined by an interesting, to say the least, non-conference setup. Some surprise losses that were redeemed by a hot streak at the end of Big East play before COVID shut everything down. Providence was looking like the team to beat. And if you 
pay attention to the Jerome, which is a, a thing among us members in the media where it's a just for fun contest. You pick the winners of every conference tournament. Josh, I'll let you back in here for a second. That's something you and I have done very well with over the years, maybe yeah. some more than others, but Providence <laughs> not, is my not Jerome. To brag. Providence was my Jerome <laughs> pick last season and with good reason. Jake, you go into this season now, nine and eight, and almost at the same kind of crossroads heading into the same part of the season. Does last year, and this ties in almost to what I asked Josh about Seton Hall and having its back against the wall, does this similar experience from last season really play into this team's hands, do you feel? Well, I think if you ask Ed Cooley, he'll say no. Uh, he'll say, you know, we're focused on this year. We need to win every game. But I'd be foolish to think that it's not playing in a little bit. You look at last year, you hit the nail on the head. Some, some good wins to start, you know, blowing out Sacred Heart and NJIT like they should have. But the losses are what sticks out. It's Northwestern in, you know, in Evanston, Illinois, as part of the Gavit tip-off games. You have Penn at home, which is a bad loss. And then they go and play in the Wooden Legacy Tournament. Long Beach State and Charleston, they both lose to. They squeeze out a three-point win at Pepperdine, lose to URI. They squeak out a game against Stony Brook, and then they get blown out by Florida and Brooklyn. At that point, you're starting to panic because those losses are not good. Um, I understand that you know it's Florida at the end, and it was 83-51, though. That, that was a totally disheveled Providence team. Um, with games against Texas coming up, then you have Georgetown, DePaul, Marquette, Butler, who's ranked at the time. You know that that's a very dangerous road that they had to cross last year, and then they had some signature wins. It was Ed Cooley challenging a group of seniors who knew that this was going to be their last time around and didn't want their legacy to be. You know, Providence loses out, and you know they're they're playing on Wednesday to start the Big East tournament, and then they. You know, they're done. They pack their bags and go back to God's country, as Ed Cooley calls it. He wanted them to, to play a little bit higher at the level he knew he could perform. Then they had some signature wins, like I mentioned. You know, the Seton Hall game, who can forget Josh Adams and I sitting on the rafters on February 15th at the Dunkin' Donuts Center watching the entire Providence student body uh, prematurely storm the court, we'll call it. They had to all be escorted off, so that game looked a little bit closer than it should have been. But wins at Butler – at Hinkle Fieldhouse, they beat Creighton 73-56 to at the dunk last year, too. This is a team that was ultimately defined by its signature wins and not that bad loss. So that's what we're going to need to see um, going forward. I think a win against Seton Hall, you put that in that bucket. If they can split versus UConn, who is, I think we've established, a top-tier team in the Big East this year, you know, that's, that's a big win, too. Uh, they've got another opportunity to play Villanova and beat him. They've got a revenge game against Xavier coming up in a couple of weeks. Those are areas that Ed Cooley, you bet, is going to be challenging them to make a couple of big plays and make some shots when it counts. So there are certainly glimpses of last year to answer your question, but also certainly nothing they can't overcome. I was at that game at the Dunk, too. I was down, downstairs courtside as – part of John Fanta's entourage trying <laughs> to have him guide me through a court storm. That was a good, that was a good night up in Rhode Island, but I'll get into this season again, Jake. And you mentioned David Duke and Nate Watson playing the two man game. And we've seen that from so many Providence teams in the past, Bryce Cotton and LaDante Henton, Henton and Chris Dunn. And now it's Duke and Watson this season. And the both of them have been playing at an otherworldly level. Both should be first-team OBD selections. One may get left out depending on how the rest of the season plays out and how the voting shakes out. But between Duke and Watson, Jake, I ask you this. Across the Big East, is there a better or more refined inside-outside combo than what Ed Cooley has in either of those two? Man, I'm, I'm glad you said inside-outside combo because you were really going to tempt me to take Marcus Zagorowski and Mitch Ballack uh, over at Creighton. I, I love oh, the way they two play together, but, yeah. but that's not your question, and it makes it a lot Ballack, easier. Ballack had another three while we were uh, talking about that. Oh, I, I don't doubt it at all, for sure, but ah. the answer is no. The, the answer is no. I think you, you look at a team um, that without – Watson and Duke would really have some questions. Um, now, I, I'd really have to think about who would even be second to those two, but, uh, you know, I, Watson and Duke, 
Duke's got 199 points, Watson 188. Together, that makes up just under 50% of a, the entire team's points. You know, th- these are guys that Ed Cooley has said, man, the rest of the team needs to really get it together because they're doing too much. And who's going to be the guy to step up? I, I still think we don't know. We've seen some nice glimpses of Alan Breed, who's filled in well for the point guard, Jared Bynum, transfer over from St. Joe's in Philadelphia. Breed, a real quick guy, makes real good passes, very intelligent on the court, also has a real nice shooting game too. So I think that could be an option to lighten the load for David Duke. But I think Ed Cooley, for the most part, is let down by Noah Horkler and Greg Gant, who were promised as great defenders this year. And they've been far from it, to be quite honest with you. Noah Horkler started off, uh, he was going to start every game, and he only started the first four. And that was it. And he's seen a pretty significant minutes reduction. Um, And I think that goes to show how much faith Ed Cooley's got in these guys. Ed Cooley talked to the media the other night and said, you will not find a back-to-the-basket center like Nate Watson that did what he did tonight. And tonight was against Creighton, in which they, they won by a couple of points. But he also scored well into the high 20s. And it's so true. He's a back-to-basket, scrappy point guy who's really going to give you a hard time on defense. And when you compliment him with a pure scorer and one of the most intelligent basketball players Ed Cooley's ever coached in David Duke. You've got yourself a winning recipe. The question is who's going to be the supporting cast, which I think as we're seeing as a theme tonight, that's still yet to be determined. We're talking to Jake Zimmer and Josh Adams of our sister site, College Hoops Digest, here on the Daily Dose Hoops podcast, previewing Providence and Seton Hall Wednesday night, and then the Friars will take on St. John's at Alumni Hall on the Providence campus, and some old-time St. John's fans might look at Alumni Hall and think that it was down here in New York, but not the case. This one is in Rhode Island Saturday before the Super Bowl, but we'll get back to Providence here, Jake. A comparison that I noticed on social media not too long ago, I can't remember if it was your own or if it was someone else that you had retweeted, but the comparison between Nate Watson and Ben Bentel in his 2014-15 season, we won't talk about what Brian O'Connell did after that, but <laughs> the comparison between Watson and Bentle and Bentle's playing with Chris Dunn is one that stands out because I, I see a similar career arc from freshman to sophomore in Bentle's case. And now Watson last year to this year, you see more similarities between the two aside from the numbers, Jake, how, how much of, of a comparison, an accurate comparison is that? Well, it's an interesting comparison for sure. I think when you look at the, when you put the numbers aside, I think Bentel might've been, he might've had a little bit more shooting aptitude um, and all that good stuff. But I mean, these guys were both eerily similar. Um, You know, when you had Dunn and Bentel team up, they scored the number here is 1280 out of the 2577 points in 15 to 16. And that's just under 50% of the output. Duke and Watson are doing the same exact thing pretty much, all things considered. So they're very well complemented by, you know, a pure scorer um, and someone that really knows what they're doing in terms of marshalling the floor. For sure. That's what, that's what you've seen between the two of them um, so far. And I think just the, the faith that Ed Cooley has and the physicality and the the improvements they've made from one year to the next are really what stands out to me. I mean, they've, they've jumped in minutes uh, exponentially from Watson's junior to senior year. And then Bentel's freshman to sophomore year, obviously his time was cut short for the NBA, but um, all categories, really points, rebounds, uh, free throw shooting went up, shooting from the floor went up and all, and, and both of those guys. And I think, that's a testament to what Ed Cooley's built. And you really can't say enough about what Nate Watson's doing for them. Like I said, they just need help. They really just need help. And we're going to have to see who exactly that is. And you segue right into my next question, Jake. And that's the importance of A.J. Reeves, which maybe gets a little lost in the shuffle when you look at what Duke and Watson are putting up points-wise and the disparity from those two down to the rest of the the roster. But when you look at Reeves and to a lesser extent, Jimmy Nichols, who's come along and 
gotten some time in the starting lineup as a result of his recent productivity. Do you feel their, their importance is being underscored a little bit in the shadows of Duke and Watson without Reeves and Nichols? Where would this team be? It's a great question. I think the, the problem with Reeves, I was listening to the Kevin Mack sports show on WPRO that just debuted a couple of weeks ago. Our good friend Kevin McNamara up here in Providence, formerly of the Journal. Kevin's uh, a legend. He, he, yes, he is. Can't say enough good things about him. He had uh, Joe Hassett on, of course, the Friar legend and uh, John Rook's color guy on WPRO. And Joe was making some real good points. Um, Reeves is, he's been great. He's been averaging, you know, double digits. He's in the 11.1 uh, to 11.5 points per game area. He just had a great night against Georgetown the other night, 28 points. That was a season high shot, 50% from downtown. But the problem is with AJ Reeves, he just has been far from consistent. Um, he'll make the big shot when they need him to, but is it worth the, the turnovers and the low scoring percentages from three, I think is what we need to you know, start asking ourselves. And maybe that gives a little glimpse why. Um, you look at the past couple of games, scored 28 against Georgetown, 13 against Marquette. And then before that, nothing really impressive, to be quite honest with you. Five against Villanova, two at Creighton a couple nights ago. And that was a win. People forget that. That was a game that he went one for eight from the floor, not even from three, he went 0 for four from three, but one for eight from the floor. I mean, he's only shooting 33% uh, as far as the season goes. So that's why, um, you know, in my opinion, I think his, he might be in the shadows for sure. I, you made a nice comment, Jaden, but um, you know, I, I think he's certainly into the shadows to these guys and he'll be able to get out if he's able to be more consistent, build on a couple of games where he's in those double digits, knocking down those shots before half or going into a timeout. Uh, something to make Ed Cooley keep him on the floor for a while and hopefully not turn the ball over. And on a similar vein, any update on Jared Bynum, Jake? There's nothing quite yet. Uh, the sources are saying that he's close, but Ed Cooley is being uh, very, he's keeping it close to his chest here for sure. I think he doesn't want to give any trade secrets away going into a, a pretty important stretch at home. I think the message though is he needs to get fully, uh, he needs to be fully able to play before they force him back onto the court. This is not a Providence team that's going to rush him back. We've already seen that too with the uh, up in minutes for Allen Breed for sure. So we'll have to see. I mean, Bynum brought some offensive stability. Won't argue that. Was not overly impressed by his play over the first couple of months as um, you know, as much as our friend John Rothstein was for sure. He, he loves Jared Bynum. Um, and I think he has the potential to be pretty good. And he just needs to get acclimated with this offense a little bit more, find out his exact place and what he can contribute. Talk to the Jake Zimmer and Josh Adams of College Hoops Digest, previewing Seton Hall and Providence this Wednesday night. And Jake, I asked Josh this from the Seton Hall perspective, and you led into it in your introduction on the Providence end. How much of a must win is this Wednesday night for the Friars with a resurgent St. John's team on deck Saturday? And we'll get into that a little bit later on. How big is this one against the Pirates looking to complete a sweep of a program that has been among the top two or three in the Big East, really, since the conference restructured. How big is this? How much of a season-swinging game is this one way or the other? Yeah, although I just mentioned these games have been close, this is a rivalry that over the past five, six years has been mostly dominated by Seton Hall. I think, well, let me rescind that. It's been very close. It's been very close. I think someone's going to have to fact-check me on the actual situational numbers here, but... Um, it, you're right. I think at this point, every game is just about as close to a must win without actually being one. So you've got a, a St. John's team that just beat UConn and Marquette, uh, right on the docket after Seton Hall. And then they've got to go play UConn. They've got to go out to Chicago to play DePaul back to stores to play Connecticut. And then Xavier St. John's and Villanova. Those are not easy games by any stretch. Um, you know, DePaul certainly seems as though they're, you know, back in the, the bottom tier of the Big East, but that the Wintrust Arena is a, a, a tough place to play. And I'm not even sure they might be playing on campus, but um, playing at Wintrust. All right. Yeah. I mean, Wintrust is a tough place to play, even without fans. So 
the question becomes what Providence team is going to show up these next couple of days against Seton Hall and St. John's. I think that's really going to set the tone for these other games coming out. Um, so we're really going to – I I think Ed Cooley's riding his guys this week. I really do. Um, about pushing them to the, their maximum physical ability to win games. They simply need to score a little bit more. They need to find guys uh, with better looks. And they need to rebound and play defense better. That, that was the Achilles heel against Georgetown uh, last weekend. It was they, they were out-rebounded 47-35. to 35. They need to make some rebounds against these teams to put themselves in a situation to win. So I think in that regard, this is probably a must-win game here. Talking to Jake Zimmer and Josh Adams of College Hoops Digest. We've previewed Seton Hall and Providence in depth on both ends. Now we'll get into the actual game and keys to victory for both sides. Jake, I'll stay with you here for the Friars. What more do they need to do Wednesday night? And who do you have winning this game? Man, they need to rebound. They need to rebound the basketball. That's it. I think uh, my point that I just made now that summarizes how I feel about this game for sure. The pirates, no secret. They've got the size advantage. We've, we know what Ike Obiagu's been doing. We know what Mamu's been doing. On paper, that's an easy matchup for them to out-rebound the Providence Friars. But we're going to have to see what version of Greg Gant we get. Are we going to get an aggressive Greg Gant that's crashing the boards, fighting out for some offensive rebounds, possibly? And that goes with Noah Horkler as well. We're going to see him in the paint, fighting around, getting loose balls, setting some screens. Um you know, I think those are the keys for Providence to win. If they can do that, uh, you know, if they can get one of those two guys really going and get double digits in either the points or rebounds category, I, I, I think the Friars have a legitimate shot. If not, if, the, if it's just the Duke and Watson show again, it's going to be a real, real, it's going to be tough for Providence to win. It will be tough for Providence to win without the rebounding and defense help here. And I'll bring Josh back in here to take a look at it from the blue and white side. Josh, what does Seton Hall have to do Wednesday night in Rhode Island to get a split with the Friars, and who do you have winning this game? Well, I'll, let me uh, – I'll, I'll, I did a little fact check. Uh, <laughs> Ed Cooley versus Kevin Willard, it's 10 and 10. Yep, ten there you go. Losses. That's how close these two programs are to one, to one another. So this is the – I guess this is the rubber match right here. Uh, for Seton Hall to win, it, we all know what kind of talent Mamu Kalosvili is. And, and the thing that I would like to see, and you, you sort of see sort of this trend when Seton Hall is playing well, it's to get Kale involved early at the three-point line. If Kale gets involved in the offense early, he gets more engaged and he gets more confidence in his shot. You know, he was the biggest player of the week for a reason this year. So, A, I would like to see Kale get more involved and get him the ball. You know, Mamu Kalasvili can draw a double team, no problem, and Kale gets wide open for threes. The other big thing is their bench. With Aiken, uh, Molson, and Samuel. Samuel's sort of dropped off the map here a little bit. But those three, when they get double digits and points – it is such a boost to that team. I cannot tell you. Those three bring such an energy when they're, when they're playing their best. So, and honestly, as for the prediction game, I mean, this is, you know, considering at Seton Hall, this game went to overtime. I mean, it's a toss-up, but I think I'll, I'll, I'll do like a player prop here if if, if mom really has more than 25 points seed hall wins this game how's that does that sound good are you setting the lines on that josh can i can I, I take that anywhere <laughs> please we're not allowed to we're not allowed to do seed hall here in new jersey so, <laughs> so you tell me for entertainment purposes only gentlemen yes correct yes, for entertainment purposes only well, with that said, we go into Seton Hall on Saturday against UConn. Dan Hurley and the Huskies, the first time that Hurley will face his alma mater in Big East play. Dan Hurley is 1-0 against the Pirates, actually, from Rhode Island's win against Seton Hall 
on Thanksgiving Day in the NIT preseason tip-off a couple of years ago in Angel Delgado's senior season. Josh, what does Seton Hall need to do against UConn to come away with at least a split or hopefully, if you're Kevin Willard and the Pirates, a 2-0 road swing? Well, again, I I do believe that we've seen this from Kevin Willard coach teams in that they will go into a road environment that, that, that uh, you know, I saw it at Butler a few years ago. And, on, you know, there's no crowds or anything this year. So this is a different animal in 2021. But this team, his teams win on the road. They just do. And with, with Seton Hall this season, again, it's the same sort of formula. Are they engaged? Are they running motion on offense? Are, you know, this team is such a, has such a Jekyll and Hyde quality to it. The weave. And, and the weave is, it, you know, that's, that's what sort of drives me nuts about this year's team is that it all is hinging, I think, on everyone sort of being on the same page. And, and, and with, I, again, with Aiken getting more minutes, I think he's much better suited to sort of run the offense because neither neither Reynolds or Molson are are pure point guards, but they need to go up to UConn and and do a a Seton Hall special, which is defense, Mamu Kalasvili, and hard nosed, good old fashioned Pirates February basketball, which is they win games that they're not supposed to, and <laughs> I think that's UConn. And Jake, let me get into Providence and St. John's on Saturday. Do you get a sense, first off, that Seton Hall might be a trap game with a resurgent Red Storm team who now comes in having played Villanova? They'll have played Villanova. They get the Wildcats this Wednesday night at Carnesecca Arena. Jay Wright coaching in Queens for the first time, maybe ever. I have to go back. I, my records on St. John's pre-2007 aren't strong in my memory because I didn't really cover the Red Storm until I started doing college radio as a senior. That, that might be grounds to get me burned at the stake at the alma mater, but I digress. <laughs> you go into a St. John's matchup Saturday, Jake, with a defense-minded team and a freshman point guard in Pasha Alexander, who is probably the most energetic guard that they've had in quite some time. You throw in Julian Champagny, who's leading the Big East in scoring as a sophomore, no less. And then a supporting cast of Greg Williams, Isaiah Moore, Vince Cole, Rasheem Dunn. I'm probably missing somebody, and I'm going to get lit up for it on social media when people listen to this. But what does Providence need to do against the Red Storm in, in a game that'll probably be a knockdown drag out somewhere in the, the mid to high 60s? What is what does Ed Cooley have to ensure the Friars do to walk away with at least a split of the week or if the Friars do beat Seton Hall, a 2-0 homestand? Well, you mentioned that St. John's this year, and kind of uncharacteristically so, has a, a very defensive-minded team, right? They're scrappers. They're very good. They, um, they're able to read lanes very well, and they play some pretty good perimeter defense, too. What I think scares me about St. John's though is that people forget this team has some shooters too. Right? <laughs> they have some very good shooting talent. And lucky enough for Providence, they've really defended the three-point line well this year. The opponents are shooting under 31% from three-pointers. But it's the, it's the two-point defense that they really need to sharpen up on. And I'm not talking about you know the paint. Not really terribly worried about Providence's defense um, or, you know, ability to defend St. John's in the paint. What I am worried about is the shooters getting hot. So the, the Friars really need to do a great job of defending the long two, um, you know, locking down the three per usual. Basically, if they play really good perimeter defense, I'm not too worried. Uh, I'm not too worried that Providence will come away with a win. That's a big question, though, right? It's can, uh, with all of Ed Cooley's improvements, you know, trying to sharpen up the paint D, does something have to give? Um, if it's a perimeter defense in that game, that game could get out of hand in St. John's favor, to be honest with you. 
Talking to Jake Zimmer and Josh Adams of College Hoops Digest. Jaden Daly here with you on the Daily Dose of Hoops podcast. We've covered the Pirates of Seton Hall. We've covered the Providence Friars. The two teams play each other Wednesday night in Rhode Island. And then the next games for both sides, Seton Hall at UConn, Providence home for St. John's. We'll shift gears a little bit. And one topic that's in the news here in the New York metropolitan area, the anticipated head coaching vacancy of Fordham, Jeff Neubauer, and the Rams parted ways last week. Mike DePauli, the longtime assistant coach going back to the Tom Pecora regime, has the honors the rest of the way until the Rams decide on a replacement. And Jake, I'll start this with you because the one candidate who has garnered a lot of buzz for this job is Jared Grasso, who we had on our most recent episode of this podcast, the head coach at Bryant University, now leading the Bulldogs to a 10 and five is the record, right? They got, they got swept against FDU and now they're six and four in the NEC. Can you get me on that? Correct. Yeah. Now you're, you're exactly right. You did your research. Okay. Even a broken clock is right twice a day, <laughs> <laughs> but Bryant has had a resurgence season and knowing Grasso as we do me going back to his days with Tim Clouse at Iona and you for the last three years up in Smithfield, what makes him so attractive to a program like Fordham where he was the interim in the same position back in 2010. How much more has he learned, do you feel, covering him from a media perspective that would make him the perfect fit to resurrect the Fordham tradition? Yeah, Jared has been nothing short of incredibly pleasant uh, in his three years at Smithfield. Um, I got to know Jared when I was a senior in college, believe it or not, I was hired by the Bryan athletic department to take over the public address job. And um, ever since then, I mean, he's always made a point to identify the people, um, you know, in the Bryant community that are, are doing really good work and, um, and, you know, thank them for all they've done. And uh, I can confidently say, you know, my angle at all of this is that, Jared is a guy that any program wants to have and any school wants to have represent them. Um, it's only natural that a program like Fordham is tossing his name around, right? Um, Grasso architected or is in the middle of architecting. That, that's one of the best turnarounds in the history of our sport here in college basketball. He took over the program in 2018. As we know, he was 3-28, dead last in the Northeast Conference. And to not make the NEC tournament, you really need to be at the bottom, as we know. It's the top eight schools, and there is only 11 of them um, historically. So that's not good if you don't make the NEC tournament. Uh, they turned it around, made the playoffs the next year. Describes it as a relentless pursuit of project or progress. Excuse me. Built a basically layered culture on hard work. Um, you know, desire to see the team succeed uh, and ultimately grooming players to be pros. That was, that's what this is all about. He went on your show, Jaden, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, "I ask everybody if they want to be professional basketball players. For the most part, you know, what high school kid that wants to play Division One doesn't want to be a pro basketball player, and then he works them." He says, listen, this is not all sunshine and rainbows here. You're going to work your, <laughs> you're going to work your tail off. You really are. And I think um, that translates into really good success on and off the floor of the program. Naturally, now, if you're asking me my opinion on this, I think uh, it's growing sentiment that if Jared were to stay at Bryant for a couple more years at the very least, his ceiling might be higher. And he might ultimately get to where he wants to go quicker if he has a little bit more success at Bryant. Now, the jury's still out on that. Um, who in their right mind wouldn't turn down the Fordham salary of reports being between 800 k and a million bucks? I mean, that's life-changing amount of money and a mm. lot more than what he's making right now, for sure. I think it doesn't really take a rocket scientist to know that. But, you know, as far as someone who you want to represent your school, your program, I think he, he's got to be at the top of the list. And Josh, I'll add you into this conversation here. You and I have covered Fordham for years, going back to Tom Pecora's heyday at Rose Hill, where you and I and our friend Tony Sula Heffinger, formerly of the New York Post, now doing great work covering sports and pro wrestling for Yahoo, were the only media members on press row during those halcyon days at Rose Hill. You look at this program and you see some of the candidates like a Grasso, like a Shaheen Holloway at St. Peter's, who would be another 
instant credibility hire that would turn the program around within three or four years at least. And then you see names like Greg Horenda at FDU. Another name that we're familiar with, Jim Ferry, who's doing an excellent job as the interim coach at Penn State. If the Nittany Lions decide to go for a bigger name, Ferry's a New York native and he would face at Fordham something similar to what he had at LIU, really rebuilding the program and turn it into a three-time Northeast Conference champion. Some other names, Jack Perry, his successor at LIU, who's now the head coach at Southern New Hampshire Division II. Brandon Knight, the Rutgers assistant, who's been described by Steve Peichel as ready to run his own program. Josh, where do you see Fordham going? And who do you think that hasn't been mentioned might be a candidate there? I'm, I'm still stuck on you saying a, there was a Tom Bacora heyday at Fordham. <laughs> <laughs> when was, Why can't Fordham Steve, get exactly guys like that? that? <laughs> Why can't Fordham get guys like Tom Bacora? I love it. Yep. <laughs> Did we miss – was I in a coma for a year or something? Because I, I, don't, I don't remember. Uh, uh, Tom Bacora hated it. Maybe getting uh, Eric Pascal. Maybe maybe that was uh, the heyday the <laughs> of, uh, of uh, Tom Bacora. Era. And Ryan Ryan Canty before he had he, oh Canty you know, yeah John Sevier's yeah you know guys like that I, you know Fordham is is it, it's it's tough to describe you know it, it seems like such a so such could be such a plum job it really does you know you you have uh, it's funny you do halfway decent there. You're going to get a, na- a nationwide plug from like a Tony Reale or a Michael K, you know, famous or, or a Mike Breen, you know, famous Ford alums. And, and there's certainly, you know, it, it the potential is always there to, to say, you know, Fordham can't succeed, but it is, it is just a coaching black hole. It really is. And it's going to take someone just Newbauer, we all sort of knew right right off the bat. I remember sitting down with Newbauer a month after he was hired at Fordham. We sat in his office. We talked probably for, I don't know, a good two hours, actually. And um, the one thing that stuck out to me, I remember on the subway ride home, I was I was thinking to myself, man, he he doesn't seem that excited. <laughs> <laughs> about this job like he kept uh comparing uh the crowds of rose hill to the crowds that he was where was he before was he at northern eastern kentucky? kentucky eastern kentucky and uh you know i would ask him about sort of the fordham manhattan i asked him about the fordham manhattan rivalry he goes oh that's no big deal you know we get twice the amount of fans at eastern kentucky and i thought to myself yeah this this probably is gonna work and the and the and the record you know we all should do so well with the amount of money and uh, the record that uh, that was uh, produced by him, but um, you know, going into it, there's there is you know new leadership at, at Fordham. There's new AD, and with that, I think you know I know how highly you think of of, of Shaw over, over at St. Peter's, and I would like to see him get a crack in the program. We we, uh, we brought up Grant Filmer before. And I, that's personally, I'll, I will bang the drum for him. I honestly will. You know, I, I, I think that he's, he's more than deserved a chance to, to uh, take the helm at a program. And at Fordham, you know, the, the benefits are is that you really do have sort of a clean slate. There are absolute, the expectations are <laughs> absolutely non-existent. And you can, and you can turn that program around. I mean, you have, you have the ability to do that there. There is no pressure. You're, you're not following any legends there. You know, <laughs> you can, you can do, you can set your own course there, but it, it's going to be a challenge, but I would like to see Shaw or, or Grant get that job. But, uh, you know, it, it's, don't kid yourself. I mean, you, it, it's going to take a, a, a Hercules type effort to turn that program around something that hasn't happened heck since I was in high school. And we're talking, that's a long time ago. 
Yeah, Fordham hasn't been to an NCAA tournament since 1992. And yep. you raise a valid point with Grant Billmeyer. He's done very well, filled in for Kevin Willard a year ago for the season opener against Seton Hall. And you should, you should see that he was ready. You raise an excellent point with that, Josh. He mm-hmm. should definitely be on the list of candidates. I've seen on some Fordham message boards, Mike Rice is being thrown around. John Thompson III is being thrown around, which I don't know personally if he'd take the job, but that's an interesting candidate being that he has experience at a higher level. Michael Huger is a name that also threw me for a loop, the head coach of Bowling Green and a Bronx native, but he was with Jim Laranada, George Mason, and also at Miami. So he has ties to another New York coaching legend. Mm-hmm. We'll see what the Rams do and what Ed Caldy, interim AD, is able to do at Rose Hill after this season ends. One that more said, I think I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think I think Jim Ferry is an excellent choice. You know, I remember when he was at Duquesne and and they played at Fordham. Mm-hmm. Uh, the press conference afterwards, Ferry went on a 20 minute speech on how much he loves the New York area and how much he took the Duquesne players around to show them the sights and how much pride he has in growing up. And I think Ferry's the type of guy who would really very much bring sort of a blue collar atmosphere to a Fordham program. I think something that, mm-hmm. that they would need. So if Penn's honestly, he's doing a bang up job at Penn state. They are competitive in every game that they play. So if, if Penn state wants to go for a bigger, bigger fish in the coaching program, God bless. But if they do that, then if Ferry would take that Fordham job, that would be, that would be a, a great hire. So I agree with you on that a hundred percent. Absolutely. We, we both, we both saw firsthand what he did at LIU, and that was one of the more enjoyable mid-major teams that you and I ever really covered. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. J- Absolutely. Jason Brickman, Jamal Alasware, C.J. Garner. Name oh. me a better mid-major big three at that level. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were incredible. They were, and, they were an incredible group. They really and Julie, were. And Julian Boyd before he got injured. That's right. They were just awesome. Uh, they were they you know they go youtube them anyone listen to this go youtube the, that team they were they were at, at among the most entertaining team you you will you will see on any level in college basketball for sure 2011 12 and 13 at liu the blackbirds the last nec dynasty one more from you guys before we go and wrap this up the Super Bowl coming up this Sunday in Tampa. The Buccaneers and the Chiefs will get will get your picks from both sides. Tom Brady going for ring number seven. Patrick Mahomes looking to become the first player since Brady to repeat as Super Bowl champion. Jake, the New England boy, we'll start with you. Who do you have? Oh, man, I haven't picked yet. I haven't even – come on. You can't put me on the spot. <laughs> um, I would like to see Tom Brady win another ring. Um, I think the Chiefs are going to – they just got a little bit more talent than I think they're going to pull it off. So this is going to be real stupid of me betting on the, uh, or taking a, uh, a flyer on the chiefs here. But I, I mean, I feel like I have to, I should not, I know better than to bet against Tom Brady and here I am doing it. So shame on me. Josh. Well, you know, as a proud York PA kid, we have uh, Bruce Arians uh, graduated from my high school as the head did coach he? of the Buccaneers. Yes, he did. And his first head coaching, uh, first coaching job was at, at my high school. So uh, there's a little bit of hometown pride going on in the Super Bowl this year. And, uh, you know, I, I will, again, I think you brought it up, Jaden, but you bet against Tom Brady at your own peril. Now, so I, I think he squeaks this one out it, and it's in Tampa. You, you know, you, you think to yourself like it, this just has to be in the cards for somehow, some way. And uh, so it'll be a squeaker. It'll be a squeaker, but I think uh, Tampa 27, 24 there. I'll even give a score. So I got to break the tie here. Oh boy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's going, it's going to be, a shootout, which you normally don't see in the Super Bowl. I do think both offenses go for 30 points. And Kansas City's Kansas City. They're coming in. You know, I'm, I'm getting Green Bay Packer, Denver Broncos, Super Bowl 32 vibes here from this game. I, I really am. You have okay. – because the Packers went into that game 
as the reigning Super Bowl champions and a heavy, heavy favorite over Denver and another great quarterback matchup too that year between Brett Favre and John Elway. Elway was chasing his elusive first Super Bowl in what turned out to be Dick Enberg's last Super Bowl call as, as an NFL broadcaster. And now Brady is chasing a seventh Super Bowl ring, which no player or team has ever done. And Josh, you said it best too. You, you go against Brady at your own risk. You know what he's done. You can't ignore it. And I mm-hmm. think he's already been a part of the first overtime Super Bowl game and made history by winning that. <laughs> now he's a part of the first true Super Bowl home game. I think Kansas City has a late fourth quarter lead. Brady's got about a minute 40 on the clock or so. This is a guy who grew up in the Bay Area idolizing Joe Montana, and he's going to have a, a Montana to John Taylor life drive, winning the Super Bowl, getting number seven. I'll take the Bucks 34 to 30. Wow. Wow. Nice. Good stuff. 34 to 30. I might be reconsidering. I, I may be, I may have to rescind my pick, but I need time to think on it. <laughs> Fair enough. And that wraps up episode number five of the Daily Dose of Hoops podcast. We can't thank our friends at our sister site, College Hoops Digest, Josh Adams and Jake Zimmer enough for going through Seton Hall, Providence, and pretty much anything else under the sun, sharing some thoughts on the Fordham coaching search and really encompassing both ends of this I-95 rivalry between the Pirates and Friars looking ahead to the next game for both sides, Seton Hall at UConn and Providence home for St. John's. Both of those are Saturday, but before that, Seton Hall and Providence Wednesday night at Alumni Hall in Rhode Island. For Jake Zimmer and Josh Adams, I'm Jaden Daly on the Daily Dose of Hoops podcast. We'll be back soon enough, but until then, good night, everybody. <laughs>